So tonight we're kind of looking at uh, unity and we're looking at what Paul had to say to the church in Corinth about unity. So let's just crack on and read it, shall we? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we are reading verses 10 to 17. In fact, you know what? I'm going to pray first. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are a God who speaks. And tonight, God, as we just delve into your word, we ask that we would hear your voice. Father, would you challenge us? Would you shape us? God, we want to be more like you. And uh, yeah, we just ask that we'd have soft hearts to hear what you have to say to us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 17. And in my Bible, the title for this section is A Church That's Divided Over Leaders. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. So I don't know if any of you have ever noticed there's a very frightening thing that happens with teenage girls. I'm not being sexist. It generally happens in girls and not so much in boys. A very frightening thing that happens in teenage girls when they develop their first crush on a pop star or on a film star, on someone famous, when the hormones are raging and they become slightly obsessed. I mean... I'm sure we've all read stories of the crazy One Direction fans, and you know it goes further back than that. You know, my parents would talk about Beatlemania and things like that. You know, it, there's just a weird thing that happens in teenage girls when they get a bit obsessed with people like that. And uh, I'm going to take you back. Come with me back to 1993, when I was a teenager, and certainly where I grew up in the northwest of England, the way that you, as a teenage girl at least, showed your allegiance to your favorite band, take that, obviously. Um, the way that you did that was that you bought annuals. What was an annual about? What, what was an annual about? It was basically a magazine with a hardback cover. So you bought an annual. You also covered your ring binder at school uh, with pictures that you'd cut out from Smash Hits magazine, or Just 17. My bedroom, like many other teenage girls, I'm sure, was completely covered in posters of Take That. And I promise you, I mean entirely covered, like on the ceiling, inside wardrobe doors, everywhere. I was completely obsessed. Now, I'm sure that I was not alone in this. I'm sure I was not the only teenage girl that behaved in this, what sounds slightly crazy way. I was one of many million young girls who loved Take That. And as I reflect back, there was this weird thing that we used to do with me and my friends, this weird argument that we would have constantly. You know, you'd have these chats. Who's your favorite member of Take That? Well, Robbie Williams. Robbie Williams, ugh, he's the ugliest. I like Gary Barlow, and he's the best singer. And we would actually fall out 
over that kind of thing. Like we'd actually have an argument and be in a huff with one another. So you'd spend uh, lunchtime looking through magazines, having these chats, have a little tiff, and then not sit next to each other in maths in the afternoon. I mean, sounds ridiculous, but honestly, it's true. It was a real issue in our friendship group. And alongside this, some people had the audacity to say that their favorite band was East 17 and not take that. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but let me tell you, Take That fans and E17 fans, there was a rivalry. You could not support both at the same time. You could not be an E17 fan and a Take That fan at the same time. It's a bit like the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones or Blur versus Oasis, but turn the heat up because it's teenage girls with the raging hormones, right? It, it sounds silly, and I'm, you know, I'm saying it with a smile on my face now, but back then, those things mattered. It was serious stuff that we argued over. Now, why I'm telling you this because it's kind of the same as what was going on in the church in Corinth, in a way, hear me out. There were different groups, different fan clubs, if you like, emerging in the church in Corinth. There were people who were siding with their favorite preacher or teacher and creating kind of a fan club around them. And specifically, the three people that are mentioned in this passage are Paul, who's written the book himself, there's a group who support Paul, who love him. Uh, there's Apollos, and there's Cephas, who's Peter. So they've got their fan clubs. And, you know, these fan clubs, they've not been built so much about, uh, around the theology of those leaders, but more about their personality, people just being drawn to their personality or their style. And uh, Paul is worried, as he writes to them, that it's going too deep, that, that these things are becoming idolatry for them, that they're valuing the person more than the message that the person brings. They'd taken their eyes off Jesus and they had looked elsewhere and it was causing them to have fights. The idolatry, if you like, was causing them to have fights. So there's two main problems. First of all, their idolatry. Second of all, their disunity. They're fighting, they're squabbling. So Paul says, you know, I've had reports from Chloe's people, whoever Chloe is. I've had reports that there's fighting amongst you. And he's very quick to say twice, brothers and sisters. He uses that phrase, brothers and sisters. He wants you to know this is family. There is no place for quarreling. You are family. Christians fighting Christians. This is not good. So that's what we're looking at tonight. How does Paul try and tackle this problem of them all squabbling, of them fighting? In verse 10, he tells us what his goal is, really, and he says this, I appeal to you in the name of Jesus, agree with one another, that there be no divisions among you and you be perfectly united. That is Paul's goal. And how does he do that? He keeps trying to point them back to Jesus, pointing them back to Jesus. And the way he does this, I quite like it, He's a bit sarcastic. He asks these three rhetorical questions. Uh, and I like that. I like it when the Bible's funny. Three rhetorical questions. And it's those three questions that we're going to look at tonight. How Paul uses those questions to point the church back to Jesus. So the first question he asks the church, he says, is Christ divided? So I'm getting married in seven weeks' time, which is very exciting. Plans are, yeah. Plans are very much underway. This week we had the discussion about the cake. So I never realized, oh my goodness, how complicated a wedding cake could be. I mean, 
you've got these things you've got to discuss. First of all, how big do you want it to be? You know, what size is it going to be? Two tiers, three tiers, seven tiers, 75 tiers? What color would you like it to be? What flavor would you like it to be? Because, you know, you don't have to stick to fruitcake these days. You can do what you want. And, you know, would you like it to be round? Because that's kind of the traditional thing. But actually, square is much easier to chop up. And uh, what's going to go on top? And all these questions. And it turns out that Dave doesn't even like cake. Could you imagine if on our wedding day he took the cake in his hand and he said, I don't really like flour. Uh, I'm not really that keen on eggs. Uh, I definitely don't like fruit and raisins and all that stuff. But I do like sugar. Yeah, I like sugar. So I'll pick out all the sugar from the cake. Could you imagine if he tried to do that? He just tried to pick out the sugar from the cake. How successful is he going to be? Not very not very successful. And in the end, not only has he failed to separate the sugar from the rest of the cake, all that's left is a pile of crumbs and there is no cake. Paul asks this question, is Christ divided? Okay, it's sarcastic. It's rhetorical. The answer is, of course not. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Perhaps a better um, translation of that phrase is, has Christ been dished out? Has Christ been portioned out, chopped into pieces? and spread out around different people? Of course not. But in Corinth, the different groups that had formed were drawn, as I said, to these different preachers. They were attracted to their different personalities. So you had Paul. He's the one that founded the church. So their group would have been like, well, you know, he knows what he's doing. He brought us together. He is the right guy for the job. And then you had Apollos, who was known for being very intelligent, uh, known for... Um, just his great intellect and people would have said oh he's a good preacher you know he tells it how it is he knows his stuff and then you had Peter's group and they would have said well he was around when Jesus was around so obviously you know he's the best person to follow so, and all three of those people they all loved God they would have all been good people good men of God they would have had different styles different strengths probably different weaknesses and you know quite possibly emphasized different teachings and none of them were wrong in themselves, but they were not the full picture of who Jesus is. How could they be? They're just men. They're not the full picture of who Jesus was. And it's like the cake. By focusing on just one aspect of Jesus or of Jesus' teaching that appealed to them, actually they'd lost the whole thing. They'd been led away from Jesus by idolizing men and then fighting over it. And so Paul's trying to draw them back to remind them that Christ, that Jesus is whole. You can't chop him up. Jesus is whole. It's the whole cake or no cake. It's the whole of Jesus or it's no Jesus. You know, that's the truth. We don't get to pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like, the parts of his teaching that we, uh, that we feel easy to accept and then throw away the bits that we don't like. You know, you might think, I might think it's, uh, it's very nice, isn't it? Jesus loves me. Jesus accepts me as I am. Jesus forgives me. That's so good. I love that. I find that easy to, to understand and accept. But I don't, I don't like it. I'm not so comfortable when Jesus starts to challenge me over my sin or how I spend my money or over my sex life. I don't like those things, so I'm just going to sweep those under the carpet. We don't get to do that because we can't chop Jesus up into little bits. We either accept the wholeness of who he is and his teachings or we reject him. We have all of him or none of him. So in three words, is Christ 
divided. Paul is just trying to make the point that Jesus is one. He is whole. Whether accept him entirely or reject him entirely. And the implication is that if we accept Jesus as whole, we have to accept one another. If Jesus is one, then his body, the church, must be one. And as Christians, we are part of his body. So later in, in chapter 12 of this book, Paul describes the church and he goes into a bit more detail about how the church is like the body of Christ. He says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? You know, Paul is pointing out that in Jesus, different personalities, different styles can coexist. There is totally room for diversity in his body. And not only that, but diversity is ordained by God. It's a strength and it's something that he has designed. And I love that. You know, you see that when you look around our church. I don't think we're all the same. We're all different ages. We're from different backgrounds. We are a mixed body, if you like. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we're all the same, but it means harmony. It means being able to live and work alongside one another. Distinction is okay. Division is not. God has designed his church, you know, and he's put each one of us in the body of Christ. We have a role to play, and so we have to learn how to work in unity, in harmony, to get the body moving the way that God designed it. And I think that picture of the body really illustrates what Paul is saying in this part of chapter one really well. You know, imagine that the Apollos fan club is saying to the Paul fan club, well, you're not clever enough to uh, be in this church. And imagine that the Peter fan club was saying to the Apollos fan club, well, you're wrong. And so we don't want you here. You know, that's just the same as the eyes saying to the ears, I don't need you. Or the hand saying to the foot, you're not wanted. And we know that that is ridiculous. Where there's disunity, where there's fighting, they don't have the fullness of Jesus. And it's the same for us today. If we have got issues with our brothers and sisters within the church, then somehow we've caused a fracture in the body of Christ and we're trying to divide Christ. Christ cannot be divided. Without unity, we don't have the fullness of Jesus and without Jesus, we're nothing. So I think there's a little challenge in there for us today to examine our hearts. You know, are there things that I pick and choose about Jesus? Are there things that I, I know I deliberately ignore, deliberately sweep under the carpet because they make me uncomfortable? Are there parts of Jesus that I reject? Or have I caused a division? You know, have I separated myself from people who are not like me? We're going to have an opportunity to pray later on, which we always do in this church. And, we, you know, if that's something that resonates with you, we want to pray with you about that, that, that you would have the courage to accept the whole of Jesus, all of him. Maybe you've never even accepted Jesus into your life at all. And if you want to give your life to him tonight, we will make an opportunity for that as well. So just to summarize this first question that Paul asks, he says, is Christ divided? And he's saying, stop fighting, be one as Christ is one. Okay, second question. Was Paul crucified for you? 
Was Paul crucified for you? He says. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you're outside, you're kind of at one with nature, and you see something so beautiful that it just makes you feel really small and really humbled. So for me, I had the... uh, the joy of being at Yosemite National Park in California a couple of years ago, and it was amazing. Has anyone else ever been there? Yeah, it's, am- it's amazing. I absolutely loved it. So you've got these really famous mountains. They've all got names, Half Dome and uh, El Capitan. There's these incredible waterfalls, the most amazing nature and bears and things like that. That's, that's not so humbling, just frightening. But... Um, the scale of what I was looking at when I was there was just something else. I mean, I think Scotland's pretty beautiful, but then when I stood at the, some of these mountains, I thought, whoa, that is amazing, the scale of it. And I felt this big. And I love that. I love it when you have those moments. I love it when you look out at the stars at night and you just realize how vast uh, the universe is and you realize how tiny you are as part of that. And in the same way, when we look at the cross, when we see the beauty and the scale of what Jesus has done for us, we feel that small. It brings us to complete humility. And we look around and we see that the rest of mankind at the foot of the cross is just as small as we are. We're all looking up together at this enormous, powerful thing, the cross of Christ. You know, we can only come to God, Scripture says, through Jesus. The only way we can know God is through the Son. So we owe our lives, our salvation, our forgiveness, our cleansing, all of it. We owe it to Jesus. And this is what Paul is trying to say to them. You don't owe any of that stuff to me, Paul. You don't owe that to Apollos. You don't owe that to Peter. And for us today, whoever it is that you admire, you don't owe your salvation to Chuck or to the Archbishop of Canterbury or Nicky Gumbel or John Piper or whoever it might be. It is Jesus that was crucified for you. It was Jesus that did that. These preachers are just men and women They have no power to forgive your sins. They have no power to save you. So Paul's like addressing their idolatry to just point out again, don't do this. Don't put too much emphasis on the person. Remember who it was that died for you. It wasn't them. It was Jesus. He's kind of just trying to highlight to them, you know, the foolishness of the way that they're living, you know, letting them see that they've put someone else in the place of Jesus. And as much as those men were amazing figures, Chuck, John Piper, Mike Pilavachi, all of the ones I just named, they're amazing godly people who might be really helpful in our walk with Jesus. If we put too much emphasis on them and are so impressed by them and not by the cross of Christ, it's like being impressed by a little pebble and not realizing that you are stood at the foot of El Capitan at Yosemite. Imagine if on my wedding day, and I'm sorry for all the wedding analogies, it's pretty much in my head all the time, but imagine if on my wedding day I arrive here at the church and I look down the aisle and I suddenly decide I'm going to marry one of the groomsmen, one of the ushers. Imagine if I did that. Well, he looks like he fits the part. I mean, he's wearing a lovely suit as well. You know, he's kind of fitting with the day. He's a good guy. He's waiting for me at the end of the aisle, so why not? What's the problem? He's all dressed up and looks like the part. What is the problem? Don't worry, I won't do that. The problem is he is not the groom. 
He is not the one that I'm meant to be looking at. He is not the one that I am committing to. As a church, we are the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible says. We're the bride of Christ. So we have to be careful that we don't get misled or distracted with good, helpful things that help us in our walk with God, but we don't get distracted by them so that, they, uh, so that we take our eyes off Jesus, the true bridegroom. We have to be careful because we're actually so lucky, we're so blessed that we have access to so many fantastic resources and podcasts and books and stuff like that that are so, so helpful. Um, you know, but we just have to watch our hearts, I think, that we don't make idols of that stuff at the cost of losing Jesus at the heart of it. You know, that we don't worship the worship music rather than worshiping God. You know, that we don't worship the messenger and lose the message. Paul says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. Was it Paul that was crucified for you? No, it was Jesus. Look at the cross. And he says this in verse 17. I didn't come to preach with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of power. He says, I don't want to come with fancy words and great, you know, just to impress you with the way I speak, because I don't want to do that in case the cross is emptied of its power. I don't want you to be so dazzled by me that you forget about the cross. I think every preacher reads that verse and thinks, phew, at least Paul felt that way about his preaching too. <laughs> we don't come with eloquence and wisdom. Good, that's fine. Tick. The beautiful thing, or one of the beautiful things about the cross is that it brings unity, you know, which is exactly what Paul's wanting to encourage here. You know, at the cross, as I already said, we realize how small we are. We realize at the cross that we're sinners. We realize our failings. And I heard this phrase, we're all the same height at the foot of the cross. You know, no one at the foot of the cross is any better than anyone else. No one is more holy than anyone else. No one is a worse sinner than anyone else. We're the same height, so we can't make comparisons. Uh, they're completely invalid. We cannot boast. That is invalid. At the cross, it's a totally level playing field. And that is what should bind us together as the people of God. We're the same height. You know, at the cross, we can see that each of us has sinned greatly and each of us has been forgiven greatly. We experience God's forgiveness and we're enabled to forgive those that hurt us. And you know, at the cross, our hurt, our grudges, our squabbles, they melt away in the shadow of what Jesus has done and the price that he paid so that we could be forgiven. And you might sort of be saying, well, you know, I have been hurt, so you don't understand the, the, the level, the depth of the pain, the ways in which I have been hurt. You know, when we have been hurt much, so has Jesus. Jesus suffered much. He suffered death for us. And in him, we can find strength to forgive those who've hurt us. So in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our messy, broken relationships and our disunity and our disagreement, where do we go? Where should we go? We should go to the cross. Kneel at the cross. See its beauty. See its scale. Look up again. Be dazzled by that and remind ourselves, where else do we find comfort? He binds up the brokenhearted. Where else do we find strength to love and forgive? We love because he loved us. So let's not be satisfied with the pebble and fighting over our pebbles. 
But let's remember that we have the mountain. We have the cross. It was Christ that was crucified for us. So Paul was saying, was Christ, sorry, was Paul crucified for you? Stop your fighting. Remember, it was Jesus who was crucified for you. Forgive people in the way that he forgave you. Okay, finally, the third question. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And I like actually how he uses his own name. He doesn't always use everybody else's name as an example. He's almost using his own name to point out how ridiculous it is. He could have quite liked it that people were bragging about following him, but he doesn't. He wants to say, guys, it's ridiculous. He uses his own name in these questions. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm sure that uh, I'm not the only person who's, who's had this experience of going to a church that's not your normal church, not being entirely sure of how they do things and wondering if you're going to kind of make these really obvious mistakes and feeling a bit uncomfortable. Anyone else been there? Is that just me? Yep. So I remember um, many years ago uh, when we worked at Soul Survivor, we took a team or I was part of a team, we went out to South Africa for a month. And uh, one Sunday, we decided that we'd go and visit this church in quite a poor village in the middle of nowhere. So kind of 25, 26 of us traipsed into this tiny little church, looking very Western in our lovely clothes and with our pink sunburnt skin. Everyone was looking at us, all eyes were on us, and we smiled and we sat down, and of course we were on our best behavior. You know, if 25 people come into your church in a one, you, you know, that is going to cause people to look, right? So we sat down. Anyway, it turns out this was a Zulu-speaking church, and they spoke no English. So we sat there throughout the service, not having a clue what they were singing. We'd had no idea what the prayers were about, and we had no idea what the sermon was about. And uh, the service lasted six hours. That was a pretty long time to feel like you had no idea what was going on in very hot weather and uh, maintaining that face of like, oh, I'm really happy to be here. I totally get what's happening. This is great, isn't it? You know, every now and then there'd be this soul survivor, England, and then everyone would look at us and we just kind of went, ah, and smiled. But six hours of being in a service where I didn't really understand what was going on was a bit of a challenge, but I tell you what, I came out the other side of it thinking, I now know what it means in Ephesians when Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God, and one Father of all. Because despite not having a scooby what was going on for six hours, there genuinely was such a strong sense of the Holy Spirit in that place as they worshipped and prayed. You could sense the Lord was there and that we were all worshipping the same God. And there was such a lovely unity that came from that. You know, I'm saying my own prayers, I'm singing my own songs, but what was binding us together was the Spirit of God. And it brought such a unity. You know, at the heart of it, I love Jesus, you love Jesus, great. What could go wrong? It doesn't matter that I don't know what you're saying. He's the Lord of all our lives. He is the king and everything else, all the differences in language and culture, they just fall away when Jesus as Lord is at the core. So here in this last part of verse 13, Paul says his final question, you know, were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
And the likelihood is people were going round and they were bragging about who'd baptised them. You know, yes, Paul baptised me and uh, Apollos baptised me. But the problem with that is they weren't just referring to the person that did the dunking. It wasn't just about the person who did the deed, as it were. But actually when it says baptised in the name of, that word in means more likely into the name of. So if you're baptized into the name of somebody, you're actually kind of giving your life to them, you're pledging allegiance to them, you're at their beck and call. And so you can understand why Paul would be trying to say, no, 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 don't, don't say that. You're not at their beck and call. You're not at my beck and call. You're not at Apollos' beck and call. You belong to Jesus. Jesus is Lord of your life. You are at his beck and call. You come under his authority. When you were baptized, you signed your life over to him. He is Lord. Imagine if I had stood up in that Zulu church and said, well, excuse me, this is not how you do church. Where's my coffee? Where was your countdown? You know, you're not even speaking my language, for goodness sake. This doesn't suit me. You know, I wouldn't have said that because I'm not that rude. But we all belong to God. We all belong to God. It's not that they were wrong and we are right. But Jesus is Lord. And when there is a mutual acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, that he rules over our lives, then that in itself brings unity and it heals division. And that is true for, you know, the differences from church to church. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about relationships even within our own church. Differences that we, we might have with, with one another. Some of us might feel like we have differences with other Christians that just cannot be reconciled, you know. They're so broken. The wounds go too deep. It's too far over the line that, you know, that they can never be fixed. They can never be healed. But I want to say this, if, if you're Christians, both parties are Christians, if Jesus is Lord of your lives, then there has to be a place of reconciliation where both parties can recognize that amongst the pain and amongst the rubble and the mess, there is something so powerful that unites you all, and that is Jesus being Lord of your lives. That is a starting point for rebuilding that Jesus is Lord. I read this week, uh, Nikki Gumbel said, what unites us is infinitely greater than what divides us. So sure, there's stuff that wants to divide us, there's stuff that could divide us, but what unites us is infinitely greater, and Jesus is Lord. Unity is not about doctrine and theology and teaching. Unity is about relationship. And where else do we see relationship models so perfectly than the Trinity? The Father loves the Son, loves the Spirit. They're in relationship with one another. And it's so important as a church that we find ways to, uh, to live and love and, and work out our differences under the Lordship of Christ rather than letting them divide us. Psalm 133 says this, How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard. Precious, soothing, healing oil when we live in unity. I want to just wrap up with this story that I heard. It's a true story of um, the British naval commander, Admiral Phipps. You may or may not have heard of him. So he was the, the British, the, the commander of the Navy, uh, when the British and the French were fighting in Canada in the 1750s. So the story goes, true story, 
that he was told to anchor his fleet outside Quebec. And he was told, wait there, we're going to go and get your, uh, your soldiers to come on land. And when the soldiers arrive, you're just going to support them from your ship. You know, you'll send out your cannons and to support what they're doing on the land. So just anchor up and just wait. Wait. So it turns out that Admiral Phipps wasn't actually a very patient man. And as he waited, he was exploring the city, and apparently he got annoyed by statues of the saints in a nearby cathedral. So annoyed with these statues of the saints that he commanded his men to shoot at them and destroy them with the cannons from the ships. And nobody knows how many uh, shots were fired, nobody knows how many statues were destroyed, but the problem was this. When the land forces arrived, when they were commanded to go, now is the time to shoot. He had no ammunition left because he had used up all his ammunition shooting at the saints. If we cannot, as a church, practice love and patience and forgiveness within the church, how will the world know who God is? How will they know? Jesus said, by this they'll know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. But if the world sees us as a church, divided, fighting, how will they believe? You know, our mission is to go. Our mission is to show the world who Jesus is. And that has to start in the church. And if we've used up all our energy shooting at each other, how can we go? How can we go and tell the world who Jesus is? We have to sort it out in here first. Remember Paul's goal, verse 10 I said at the start. His goal was to encourage the church in Corinth to agree with one another that there would be no divisions and they would be perfectly united. We have to do that. We have to start in the church. Why don't we stand?